Hey, it's Ryan Patrick Cooper from Culture Shift, and I wanted to bring a new book to your attention. It's called I'm Possible, a story of survival, a tuba, and a small miracle of a big dream. It was written by Richard Antoine White. He's the first African-American to ever earn a doctorate in music for tuba performance. His story is an incredible one. I got to sit down with him and chat about the new book, which is out now. We talked about his time growing up in Baltimore, how Tupac Shakur, of all people, came into his life while studying at school, and how he finally ended up on the stage performing classical music. Not many people get to see what it's like from the stage of a classical performance. So I wanted to have relatability to that. And then I wanted a sense of acknowledgement that, you know, things like ambiance, groove and vibe are words that I deal with. Fear, you know, excitement are things that happen on the other side, because I think the majority of the population think that, well, you go to school, you learn to play an instrument and you just do it. They don't understand the maintenance that goes behind that every day and the fear that is present in the pressure, just like an Olympic athlete every single time. And I wanted the readers to get as close to that as possible and also to realize that, hey, even at the top level, we have fear and we learn to deal with that. You know, you wrote that less than 3% of orchestral musicians are African-American. I think that number's up a little bit to maybe 5% now. You know, that statistic is, is jarring and alarming and, and shows that we're only seeing a fragment of the talent that's out there on the stage. But the other one is that there might be 32 violins in an orchestra. There's usually only one tuba. So that makes it even harder for, for not only us to get on stage, but for you to actually make it on stage. <laughs> yes, I always say the job of a tuba player is to show everyone else in the orchestra how bad they suck at rhythm and pitch. <laughs> right? It's all tax. I think those statistics are important, and I would just like to add to that. There's something happening in our country right now, and I call it well-intended tokenism. This whole window of DEI is great, but it is going to close, and we must remember that excellence is void of color or gender. It's just on the level or not. So when we have minorities that don't meet that expectation, what we have to do is provide the resources for them to meet the level of excellence. Under no circumstances should we lower the bar. As we were talking about, difficult to get on that stage. A lot of people haven't had that experience. You have made it uh, to the New Mexico Philharmonic. But take me to Baltimore, the, the streets of Baltimore where you grew up and, and where you came from to get to this point. I think accessibility is most important. If you haven't read the book, I grew up homeless, Baltimore, ate out of trash cans, eaten by rats. Went on to become that first African-American in the world to get a DM in tuba, a doctorate of music, not the DMA, doctor of musical arts. I'm very proud of that. And I think the thing that I want people to take from my book most about my hard upbringing is that I had four years of a rough life. Other people have 30 plus, 20 plus, 40 plus. So I want to put that in context and I want the world to really see how little it took for people to care, for me to have the resources to achieve. It took one family saying, we're going to take care of him. And then the rest took care of itself. I do believe it takes a village. Every friend, every teacher, every kind person helped me achieve what I have achieved under I, I can't think of any conditions where I would take credit for my success solely. I think they all help me. I do believe it takes a village. We have a thing in this country where we're willing to give level five help. But if you don't achieve a level five, oh, you must be lazy. You must not be applying yourself. But we have to learn to meet students where they are and then help them grow from there. Because we need to remember great people aren't born great. They grow great. And I'm thankful for everyone that helped me from the streets of Baltimore to the stage of the New, uh, New Mexico Philharmonic. 
What was that first moment where you really latched on to music as something that you wanted to pursue? Oh, in the book, when, my, when I was failing. I don't know how my dad knew, but he took the trumpet and said, if you want this trumpet back, you're going to have to the pass. I was like, whatever it takes, I'm getting that trumpet back. I have no idea why that was a thing. Maybe because something of mine was taken from me and I was like, I'll show you. Uh, but that started this concept that I have of determination and imagination. So I was determined to get the trumpet back and I imagined my behind off what I would do once I got it back. You know, and I think dad doesn't know that, but he installed those two things in me. What were the bands, musicians, performers that were kind of floating into your ears that were influencing you and the musical taste of a young Richard? Oh man, when I first started, you know what my goal was? To make a rap record and get on Oprah. So my concert band, we was playing things like the Cosby Show, Sanford and Son. So I started walking around just beatboxing them and then playing the tune. So that influenced me. I was like, oh man, this is a hip instrument. I didn't, I didn't find out about the, the mega uh, influences of tuba until much later. I would say even high school when I found out about Harvey Phillips, Paganini of tuba, Daniel Perantoni, the legends of tuba, because me and my best friend Dante Winslow went to the Enoch Pratt Library and picked up this thing, oh man, I'm going to date myself, forgive me, called it an encyclopedia. <laughs> and I looked at these people and went, whoa, who are these tuba players? And that lit a fire into me because I saw that, hold up, you can make money doing this? Oh, I'm fitting to practice. <laughs> and that, that became business, tuba. Yeah, I mean, that's something I've never heard someone say, the legends of tuba. Oh, yeah. Uh, believe me, these people started, get this, man, I was born in 1973. TUBA, Tuba Universal Brother Association, Brotherhood Association, started in 1973. The month that I was born in May, kind of think it was meant for me to be a tuba, a tuba player. And these people started things like tuba Christmas, Oktoberfest, tuba Valentine. If we could put tuba on it, we do it. And if you don't know what tuba Christmas is, this Christmas, look it up and participate in tuba Christmas because I guarantee you it's a tuba Christmas in your town. <laughs> started by legendary Mr. Harvey Phillips, the Paganini of tuba. These were people that were really trying to put tuba in the zeitgeist, essentially. Oh, man, it's, it's some of the things that Harvey did are still in my bucket list. Like, I want Albuquerque to give me a key to the city. You know, he always said, create something that hasn't been done and then do it. I want to be the first musician to say I did uh, recital on all seven continents, working on a helicopter ride to Antarctica. <laughs> you know, this is how this is how Mr. Phillips thought. And to all the world, I'm going to open a tuba ranch, raw tuba ranch. And it's a ranch where you can come now. If you're having a bad day, wherever you live, come on down. There'll be a stage. If you don't play an instrument, don't worry about it. But 24-7, ramen noodle, chili, and beer. Come on down and join me. If you overindulge, we'll have a place in the barracks for you. If you're underage, we'll have some Kool-Aid for you. So come on down and enjoy the raw tuba ranch, inspired by the tuba ranch that Mr. Phillips had in Indiana. This is inspiring me to pick up a tuba. I want to be part, I want to be part of this tuba community. That is awesome. Man. That's the greatest compliment we can get. <laughs> Paint us a picture. You're, you're walking around Baltimore School for the Arts with your tuba, uh, really, you know, trying to make this cool, trying to make the tuba cool. And it kind of worked for you. Yes. Baltimore School for the Arts changed my life. It's a miracle school. I think you don't have to reinvent the wheel on so many things we have in our country. Just find something that's working and model it. When I first entered School for the Arts, it was a whirlwind. Uh, they made what was considered hard and cool 
they made my, my speech stronger. They made my academics stronger. And that's how they made me cool. So I went from a yo boy or run DMC rap music, you know, saying, what did I ask you instead of ask? There's nothing strong with that. It says wrong with that. They completely changed the way I spoke, made it more, uh, more academic the way I wrote. This is what I mean by they didn't cut any corners. So they polished me up and showed me that, look, if you work, you can have all the fine things in life. And the biggest thing walking around school for that I saw is that when you worked, you were always rewarded. So I realized at the Baltimore School of the Arts, wait a minute, work, work even harder, work as hard as you can, and things tend to work out. <laughs> so I would get to school at seven o'clock. I saw other people practicing. And that's the biggest thing I learned from uh, Baltimore School of the Arts. I call it the three C's, choice, chance, and change. They gave me a chance to create the right choices to see the kind of change I want to see in life. And I'm forever grateful to them. And that, that speaks a lot to the mentorship and the teachers and, and the curriculum at the school. But there was also peers of yours um, that, that were a big part of your journey as well. And they're very well-known names, uh, Jada Pinkett Smith and also Tupac Shakur. Can you tell me a little bit about um, how, how those two figures played a role in your journey and how you connected with them during your school days? Extraordinary people. Uh, I can't speak on the history books or whatever. When Tupac uh, changed his characteristics and became the thug life and rapper at Baltimore School of the Arts, I can say he was a genius. He was a nerd. He performed Shakespeare. Uh, Jay, they were stars. They had this mentality that anything was possible. That's the title of my book, Impossible. Uh, what they taught us is that the most powerful resource you have is your mind. I would sit in the cafeteria and Tupac would be like, man, you got to read. You got to know your history, man. And I'd be like, I ain't got to know nothing. And then he would start spouting history. And I was like, time up. I need to know my history. You know, because it was so profound, the influence that history has had on him. You could literally see it. So I think they showed us that it is possible to grow up where we grew up uh, at a disadvantage and turned it disadvantage into advantage. And I'm grateful for both of them. Sorry, Tupac is no longer with us, but as we know, his influence will live forever. And Jada is still a trailblazer. There was also a bit of culture shock for you at this school, right? I mean, there was so much that had changed for you before you were even the age of 18. What were the things that were kind of tough to grapple with as you were going through so much change? It's interesting. The things that that struck me the most is that I realized around that 18 age and got some, I got some, uh, some blowback for it that, you know, white, black, brown, whatever, we all breathe the same air. We all share the same space. And so I was integrated into an environment where everyone just accepted everyone, you know, whether we knew it or not right from the start, if you didn't accept everyone, you were going to grow to accept everyone. So it was a culture shock in that, if you failed something, guess what? You were just going to do it over. There was no pass. It was a culture shock in terms of there was an expectation. And so the Baltimore School of the Arts had this idea that you don't lower your expectations to meet your performance, but you raise your performance to meet your expectations. And so that, that I call it the Superman syndrome. That culture led me to believe I'm auditioning for Juilliard. I'm auditioning for Curtis and all the best schools because I think it's achievable. And I think that's what the culture did from my own background culture. 
it definitely showed me that I could be someone and I had a voice. And I had a voice that I think I could express in a way that the likelihood of it being misunderstood wasn't that high because it wasn't, it wasn't conflicted with words. It was just music. So I could pick up my tube and play. If it touched your soul, he was moved by it. There was no complication of vocabulary. Even though if I had to adapt the vocabulary, it was there. So I'm grateful for the culture they exposed me to. And when I travel the world and say, I always say that school is a miracle school. It just provided me with what I needed to do what I, I had to do. Richard, we started this conversation talking about uh, another culture, and that's the culture around uh, orchestras, classical music, and its lack of diversity. Uh, being in Detroit, one thing that we have here is the Sphinx organization, um, which has done a, a ton of work um, to get people on stage, get kids on stage that uh, statistically don't get a chance to, to be there. And, and that's really through an educational pipeline, looking at your own journey and talking about it. What needs to change? What, what are we missing right now that you would like to see more of in music education? So congratulations to your city. I can't believe you and I have never had coffee. I play with Sphinx every year. Unfortunately, this year they don't have tuba. So I'm coming to be a judge for their orchestral competition. Oh, very cool. Sphinx is single-handedly changing the social consciousness of our culture and society. I think the biggest thing that needs to change is there needs to be access. So just instruments, education, and we need to train people at an early age, much like athletes. If you look at the superior athletes, they, their age is such that they start at four. And that extra year gives them that much benefit to go on and achieve. So we need exposure and access to quality instruments, quality education. And then we have to have a sense of belonging. So we can't just have quotas and checks the box. Oh, look, we did an educational program. So one and done. What's the investment? And have you gotten a sense of belonging from these young people so that they have psychological meaningfulness? And what that means is that when you leave, they want to continue what you just taught them. And Richard, before we let you go, are there contemporary examples of, of the tuba and the cultural zeitgeist? You talked about that push in the early 70s to get the tuba more out there. Is that still happening today? Some musical examples you could leave us with? Yes, the, the tuba is hip, man. It was invented in 1835. It is the youngest instrument uh, there. So I would encourage everyone, if you're unsure just how far the tuba can go, go Google Matt McIntosh. You will hear him scratch beatbox on the tuba like you've never heard before. It is ridiculous. And he's a tuba player for a group called Young Bloods. Uh, I think the tuba is just getting started and the world will be blown away by its contributions. Our first concerto won't be 100 years old until 2054. Crazy, right? <laughs> so uh, I think the tuba is really going to make some strides in all genres of music. And right now, I think, believe it or not, the most popular music right now for tuba is the sousaphone, and it's called banded music. Mexican-style music dancing, you know, the tuba parts are virtuosic, even so much that we had a wave of theft of people stealing tubas to play banda music, and you can Google that too. So hats off to the tuba, everything that I am, everything that I have, I owe to the tuba, and I'm grateful, and I can't wait to see the future of it. A wave of theft? Yes. Go Google tuba theft and banda. You will laugh 
uh, when I go travel to Mexico, they often have a tough decision to go to school or keep making money playing banda because it's that many gigs. Crazy, right? And if you don't know the story, also Google Richard White and theft of tubas. My two tubas to the tune of $60,000 were stolen from my locked office at UNM. Crazy, right? I know. Right? <laughs> Unbelievable. Elements of the, these are elements of the culture we, we need to hear about. We can't be left in the dark about these things. Yes, I agree, man. So uh, the tuba is happening. The tuba is making its way. And every time we give an educational show, I say, look, regardless of what you hear on this stage, we all know the coolest instrument up here is the tuba because it's the youngest. <laughs> Richard Antoine White, he is the author of I'm Possible, a story of survival, a tuba, and the small miracle of a big dream. Um, it's going to be on sale on October 5th. Thank you so much for, for taking the time and making everybody who listens to this, including me, genuinely want to play the tuba, Richard. Oh, that's the goal. Thank you to you and your institution for having me on. And may we all remember there are thousands of problems in the world. I think 99% of them can be solved if we were just kind to each other. So be kind. Thank you for having me.